Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Dr. Chelsea Mueller. Chelsea is non-resident research fellow at the Moshe Dayan Center for Middle Eastern and African Studies at Tel Aviv University, and also a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Security Studies and International Affairs at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. Chelsea's a historian, but she's done some fascinating work on on aspects pertaining to the Saudi-Iranian rivalry, and I'm really looking forward to talking with her today. So, Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi there, Simon. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for your time. I'm really looking forward to this. So, Chelsea... We normally start this conversation with a question about um, what interested you in the Middle East. So, um, what interested you in the Middle East? Well, let's see. I was a history teacher, actually, in the U.S. and decided to go and do a master's degree. And I chose the Middle East. Um, Of course, it was um, in the time period after 9-11 and so forth. So, I think a lot of people were turning their attention to the Middle East and, and myself as well. Um, so it was the year 2006, actually, when I departed for a program in Middle Eastern history at Tel Aviv University. Right. And I actually arrived in the summer right during the 2006 Israel-Hezbollah war. Wow. Okay. That's interesting timing. Yeah, Sure. Um, it was going on as, as time was getting ready to go. And my parents said, are you going to go anyway? And I said, yep, I'm going to go. What better way to learn about this than to go? So, um, I arrived to Tel Aviv and, um, of course this was kind of a defining moment in the Middle East, um, because of Iran's unprecedented support for Hezbollah and also because of the way that Arab leaders rebuked Hezbollah even as it was getting pounded by Israel. So it was an indication that something was different or something was changing in the Middle East. So when I arrived to Tel Aviv, Hezbollah was firing rockets on northern Israel. And Israel was carrying out air and artillery attacks in southern Lebanon. And I was beginning my summer language course in in Hebrew and signing up for my classes and so forth, getting settled into an apartment in Tel Aviv And Tel Aviv was quiet except for the sound of planes that could be heard seen flying up and down the coastline. I noticed it while visiting the beach um, during that summer for the first time. And so that really left an impression on me. And uh, Tel Aviv was not so affected by that war. And that was actually kind of eerie because we were seeing everything, you know, in in the news Tel Aviv was relatively quiet, but the north of Israel was affected. Sure. And, yeah. That must have been a fascinating time, given this this burgeoning interest, and mm-hmm. then um, actually being there at the cusp of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, may I ask, why why Israel, given that you were, given what you've gone on to work on, uh, going to Israel for, for language skills... Uh, it, it seems a little bit incongruent with your work on the Arab-Iranian conflict. Sure, I think that interest cropped up later. Right, okay, got you. Yeah. So, I was interested in the Arab-Israeli conflict when I was a history teacher in Phoenix, Arizona. And I probably had it in mind that I would go there in order to study that. 
Right. Okay. And when I arrived, like I said, this was going on. And um, of course, when classes began, this was all that anybody wanted to talk about. It was a big focus of, of discussion. And so it sort of, I don't know, hijacked me, hijacked my interest in a different direction. <laughs> right. Interesting. What were the discussions like at that point then, given that this was such a live topic? Yeah. What was fascinating about it was that it gave me an opportunity to understand how these events were being viewed by Israeli scholars who were my professors in that master's program. And what they were astounded by was the way that Arab states reacted to the war. Yeah. They had grown accustomed to hearing regular condemnations of Israel during every Arab-Israeli confrontation or escalation, but this time it was tangibly different because the president of Egypt and the king of Jordan criticized Hezbollah even while Israel was pounding Lebanon. And they described its behavior as, quote, adventurism and said that Hezbollah was actually harming Arab interests. And I think to the professors that I had, um, no, excuse me, I think to those those Arab leaders that were making that statements, and also to Israel and to the professors that I had, that this appeared to be an Iran-Israel proxy war. Right, okay. And the leaders of Arab states didn't like that, the idea that Iran could fight Israel through a proxy and makes it, make its presence felt in the Arab-Israeli conflict. So it was kind of an indication that the Arab-Israeli conflict was being transformed. It was in a period of transition. It was being changed and really things in the Middle East were dramatically being changed. Yeah, it really was this this key moment, I think, in, in the redrawing of, of relations uh, between a number of different states across the region. And it's it's fascinating that you were there right at the right at the heart of it, if you will. Uh, Chelsea, after you did your, your master's program, then then where did your your sort of PhD program take you? What where did life take you intellectually? Well, uh, sure, let's see. The way it happened was I began working with a professor there that uh, I think you're familiar with. His name is Joseph Kostiner. Yes. And he asked me to assist him with some projects. And we called him Yossi. And that led to some afternoons where I would sit in his office and he would tell me stories and share his analysis and interpretation of events with me, including these events and he had me working on a project about the Saudis' history as conflict mediators since the 1970s. Fascinating. And he shared with me his hypothesis about why the Saudis coveted the role of being the main mediator and coordinator of inter-Arab affairs. And it had to do with their perceived need to avoid confrontation at all costs. And also it had to do with uh, traditional tribal values and religious values. And... Um, Yossi felt that King Abdullah aimed to sort of enhance his influence in the Gulf, among the Gulf states, by donning that mantle of a traditional tribal chieftain um, who enhanced his authority by mediating peace between and within tribes and between tribes and regional players. And this sparked an interest for me in tribal politics of the Gulf, which was one of Yossi's areas um, of expertise. Yeah, and sure. so... Sure. And I actually, when I was working for him, is when I found the topic for my own dissertation. And it was because he asked me to investigate Mohammed Reza Shah's policy towards the Gulf Arab sheikhdoms. And 
I remember that I had all the information that was needed to answer his question because there's lots of literature out there about that, but just for the sake of context, and I wanted to prepare something really nice for him, so I wanted to uh, just have kind of a sentence about the father, about Reza Shah and his policy towards the Gulf Arab Sheikhs before they were states, of course. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to quickly, quickly find it, and I couldn't find a good source on it. And I actually went to the library and I spent time looking in the the edited volumes, the Cambridge Archived Editions, where that was where I started to get some answers. So it wasn't what Yossi or Joseph Kostiner had asked me to investigate, but at that moment I kind of discovered that there was a gap in the literature on that subject. The um, interconnectedness between Iran and the Gulf Arab sheikhdoms and the relationships between them. So I told Yossi about this um, and he encouraged me to go for that topic. I was finishing up my master's and um, he wasn't he wasn't doing real well health-wise and he wasn't sure of his ability to be my advisor for that. So he arranged a meeting for me with his own doctoral student, Uzi Rabi, who was starting to move up in the history department there at Tel Aviv University. And then Yossi had a separate meeting with Uzi and asked him to take me under his wing and that is how Uzi became my advisor and my advocate, and Yossi passed away not long after that. Right. Well, it's a, a sad tale of, of what happened to, to Yosef. I never had a chance to meet him, but his work has had such a big impact on, on my understanding of, of a lot of the, the tribal dynamics of, of the region. But it's, it's all really, really useful background stuff, Chelsea, particularly with regard to, um, to the book that I want to get onto um, shortly. I assume that the the book is is essentially your your doctoral thesis. That's right, it is. Fantastic. In which case, we can jump straight to that. Then, I guess um, this is an absolutely fascinating topic for for those of you that haven't had chance to to look at the book. Um, the book is out, isn't it? Well, any day now. <laughs> any day now. It's getting pushed back because of the pandemic, but any day. Well, I have a copy that's due to be delivered to me as and when it comes out, um, oh, great. which I'm, I'm really looking forward to going into. Um, the book is titled The Origins of the Arab-Iranian Conflict, Nationalism and Sovereignty in the Gulf Between the World Wars. So we've, we've heard a bit about how you got on to how you identified the topic. But what is it that you were that you were doing then in the in the book? You were obviously trained as a historian and engaging in a historical bit of analysis. So tell us a little bit about the context, if that's okay, please. What is it that that is taking place in the Gulf at this time, um, particularly between the the Arabs and the Iranians at this point in time? And exactly when when were you starting? Sure. So as you said, I wrote about Arab-Iranian relations in the Gulf. Um, It was during the Reza Shah years, which also roughly corresponds to the period between the two world wars. And what I did was, is I paid particular attention to the triangular relationship between the Arab sheikhdoms and Iran and the British, which were the dominant power in the Persian Gulf at the time. And I examined the revival of Iranian national ambitions in the Persian Gulf under Reza Shah Pahlavi and the challenge that his assertive Persian Gulf policy posed not only to Britain's hegemonic position in the Persian Gulf, 
but also the challenge that it posed to the Arab sheikhdoms that were under British protection. And I examined the dynamics of the these you know these dynamics on the dense web of Arab-Iranian relations in the Gulf. Fantastic. So there's been a bit of work done with regard to Saudi-Iranian relations at this time, and I think um, someone like Banashi Kanush has talked a bit about this as as a period of of interesting. Um, I don't know if friendship or positive relations is, is perhaps the best way of putting it, but there's there's certainly a more positive dimension to relations at this point than than in later years, albeit with some underlying points of friction concerning um, sect-based difference. But what is it like in, in your cases, in the Bahraini case, the Trucial States case? What, what are relations like at the start of this period, so what, the late 1910s? In the late 1910s, well, uh, this would be around the time of the Constitutional Revolution in Iran, I guess you could say. Yeah. There was a rise of nationalist feeling in Iran, but at the same time, it was, um, I mean, it was futile. There was a situation where Russia and Britain were dividing Iran into spheres of influence between themselves. And this was really a, an insult to um, to national sentiment in Iran. And so I think that there was a, a thinking, especially among the intellectuals, that what was needed was someone who could use force in order to push out the British and push out uh, the Russians and reclaim Iranian sovereignty over its territory. And that gave way to a thinking that perhaps it needs to be a military leader. And um, this came to fulfillment, I think, in the person of, of Reza Shah, who um, committed a coup against the Qajar dynasty and basically crowned himself as the new um, Shah of Iran. And that's almost 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how, and, was, how was that coup received across the Gulf then? Well, there was excitement in the Iranian port towns, I think. And there was a thinking that it was accompanied not only by his coup, but also by his military campaigns, which were beginning to bring the um, provinces of Iran back under the control of the central government. And so there was expressed in the port towns where Arabs and Iranians mixed and mingled, their lives were very interconnected and their economy was very interconnected. So there was expressed in the Iranian port towns among officials and locals, there was an excitement that this process would continue and that Reza Shah would also um, initiate some campaigns that would bring territories that were viewed as formerly part of Iran back under Iranian control in the Gulf. So that included Bahrain, of course. Yeah, um, there was an excitement in the press, in the in the local talks, and in the rumors that this was going to result in a campaign that would reclaim Bahrain and bring it under Iranian sovereignty. That it would go so far as to kick out the British from the Persian Gulf, as the British presence was a, a front and an uh, insult to Iranian um, nationalism. And also, there was irredentism. There was a thinking that said even. The, the Trucial States, what is today the United Arab Emirates, even places like the Trucial States there, and even um, Muscat, there's lots of Iranians there, and this was formerly part of Iran's domains, and so 
we should try to reclaim that too. And this, um, and that was fascinating. I think there, there was, it was a kind of a local, I think, phenomenon that all of a sudden there were officials that were delving into the history of Iran's relationship with the Southern littoral and writing reports to Tehran and saying, this is our opportunity. Let's also, you know, take back these lands that formerly were part of our domains and, um, and, and th- this is what I found fascinating, I think. Yeah, I, I can see why. I mean, you talk about irredentism there, Chelsea. That I find that idea of irredentism across the Gulf amongst these um, these non-Iranian uh, forms of political organization just absolutely fascinating. Was this the, the actions of a particular small group of individuals, small but noisy perhaps, or was it... Uh, generally a widespread popular view in, in Bahrain and in the, the Trucial states and in Muscat, for example? Or, or, or is it something else? How do we understand what's going on there and how popular were these these moves? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's hard to gauge coming sure. from the perspective of a historian and, and relying on documents for the information. It's hard to gauge how much popular appeal it had. Um but the local officials did a lot to try to stir up um, these sort of sentiments. So, for example, there was an Iranian community in uh, Bahrain, also in a large one in Dubai. But at the time, um, there were some local officials that tried to stir up the Iranian community in Bahrain to the idea that um, that Iran was soon going to take over Bahrain, that, that a customs official would be sent to Bahrain to start, uh, you know, charging customs that the passport official would be arriving soon in order to take the matter of um, regulating the travel out of the hands of the British and put it back in Iran's control, that um, efforts were being made to lure the sheikh back into um, a relationship with Iran and so forth. And they got this community in Bahrain pretty excited. And um, the community in Bahrain was receiving some Iranian officials and some journalists and providing stories that were fueling this campaign and the press in Shiraz. And um, yeah, I mean, that whole story is fascinating because Arabs in Bahrain were looking on as this was going on and saying, what are they doing? They're now this Iranian school, they're, you know, giving the kids these flags and they're marching around Manama with, uh, you know, marching and singing some Iranian anthems and so forth. And it created kind of an impression, I think, in the minds of um, local Arabs in yeah. Manama. I mean, if you if you were to talk to um, to Bahrainis or particular groups of Bahrainis post seventy nine, post um, two thousand, post twenty eleven, you would hear similar types of allegations about Iranian manipulation and. Iranian aspirations and claims to Bahrain involvement in nefarious activities there. So it's interesting hearing that historical set of, of parallels and, and allegations. But Chelsea, yeah. you, you mentioned um, Iranians in Bahrain. Was this, uh, just to, to press slightly, was this a group of, of Iranians or um, Bahrainis who were ethnically um, Persian, so the, the Ajam community? Ajim, talking about the Ajim. Sure. Okay. So there's a there's an interesting tension within Bahrainis and the tensions between the the ethnically Arab and the ethnically Persian Bahrainis. That, right. Right. That has long played out there. That's really really interesting stuff. And I guess 
this wasn't so popular with the um, the ruling Al Khalifa or indeed the British. Right, the Al Khalifa relied on the British to take care of it. They had, you know, signed over their um, their right to conduct their own foreign policy to the British, and so the British were doing their best to, first of all, try to settle the matter with Iran by negotiating a, a treaty. It, there was a, a vision for a, a general treaty. And um, what the British hoped to achieve was to resolve all of the outstanding issues between the British government and Iran and the Persian Gulf, which would include um, that Iran should give up its claim to Bahrain and to other, and its other it had kind of shadowy claims, that irredentism that I talked about. Yeah. What Britain wanted was for Iran to renounce these shadowy claims to other territories in the Persian Gulf. Right. And um, what they wanted in exchange for that, they wanted to have leasing rights for the bases that they were already using in the Persian Gulf. Um, so the British, yes, were very much, they were adamant about protecting the sovereignty of the Arab Sheikh of Bahrain. And for them, it was a non-starter, the notion that they should... Um, that they should compromise on that issue. Sure. So I think the Al Khalifa Sheikh very much leaned on the British in order to handle it for him. Right. That that makes sense, I guess. What role did did the British um, interest in in Iranian oil play at this point, or should we view those as, as separate entities, separate uh, strategic calculations? Sure. Reza Shah cancelled. Um, concessions to the British, and he also wanted to renegotiate the terms of the oil agreement. Um, and those negotiations were conducted not with the British government, but with the company itself. So two separate sets of negotiations were had during that time. Right, okay. It's it's such a complex picture here. And yes, yes. I guess that's just with, with two sets of issues. What about the, the trucial states? Do we see similar types of processes there, or are there different um, different dynamics at play? Trucial states, well, um, the trucial states also had many Iranian immigrants living in Dubai, for the most part, but also in Ras al-Khaimah and um, in um, Abu Dhabi as well, smaller groups of Iranians who were more or less um, living their lives kind of divided between both shores of the Gulf. They would have sometimes a, a business that was located in a place like Bastak or, or surrounding area, and then another location in Dubai, for example, and they would move back and forth between those two locations, sometimes having wives in both locations. And so this time period, the time between the, the two world wars was a time when Iran implemented a customs patrol into the Persian Gulf, which now meant that you could not just easily bring your, say, uh, groceries from Iran over to be sold in the souk in Dubai without maybe bumping into the customs agents of Iran who viewed what you were doing as, excuse me, if you were bringing the groceries, you know, if you were trying to land a boat or something like that in Iran, what you what you could be accused of would be smuggling. Right, okay. So the livelihood that they had become accustomed to over many years was now being regulated, and um, it was not just that, but Iran introduced its navy into the Persian Gulf with some gunboats that could um, 
assert Iran's control over small islands that it had wanted to regain control over for, you know, decades. And there was this sense that Iran was just um, claiming the Gulf for itself, kind of, the whole Gulf for itself. Right. And that these these families, these merchants and these merchant families were forced to figure out where they oriented in this whole thing. They were forced to decide, am I going to be a resident of Dubai or am I going to be a resident of Iran? Because now the travel was being restricted, the trade was being restricted, and so many families were forced to decide issues of citizenship. And um, I think that it was kind of a transition period, kind of a turning point in the Gulf for those reasons. It strikes me that there's there's a real sort of turning point in terms of ideas of statehood and this sort of establishment of of states with with more I, uh, I don't know more established forms of regulation governance and bureaucratic control pertaining to these issues is that fair to say is that is that just a coincidence in terms of time or is this is there a relationship between what's happening with Iran and concerns about um, nefarious Iranian interference within domestic matters or is it just just, I guess, the, the a product of the evolution of, of political organization in the Gulf at this time. Yeah, it's the dawn of modernity, I think. It's right. the rise of nationalism and the defining of borders. Sure, okay. And it, right, and it ties in with what was, I think, processes that were going on around the world at the time also. Yeah, certainly. Chelsea, I must ask about um, about Saudi Arabia's role in all of this. I realize it's not something that you focus particularly on in the book, but... but Given its its influence across the region, given that you had this new state emerging on the Arabian Peninsula, a, a, a vast tract of land um, led by an influential leader with, with strong claims to religious legitimacy, where does the Saudi case fit into all of this? Well, interestingly enough... Um Ibn al-Saud was not projecting a presence into the Persian Gulf like the Arab Shehtams were. Right. Um, the other consideration is that these Arab Sheikhs had been accustomed for many years to securing their autonomy by making an arrangement with a regional player or an external player that could help make sure that they would, you know, have have their maximum amount of autonomy. So Ibn Saud was viewed sometimes as a possible, oh, you know, a possible overlord that perhaps could um, could help them achieve some of those aims and goals. So there were some times when the British discovered that an Arab sheikh was, you know, having discussions with Ibn Saud, and. This was contrary to British interest in keeping the Arab sheikhs within the, you know, within the British informal empire there in the Gulf. So he would be reprimanded. And what the British did was they made a separate treaty with Ibn Saud, according to which he was supposed to respect the British position in the Gulf Arab sheikhdoms and not try to draw the sheikhs out of the arrangement that they had with the British. And he must have viewed it as in his own strategic interest to abide by that. Right. Okay. 
I have so many more questions, Chelsea. So many questions, but I'm conscious that we've taken up a lot of your time, and I'm I'm so excited to read the book. It's absolutely fascinating. But I have one final question, if I may, and that just concerns what what is the legacy of, of all of this? Do you think how influential is is this period of of time in understanding contemporary um, dynamics across across the Gulf? Sure, you know. Um you can find references to these events of the interwar period in some of the, um, you can go on some Arabic forums where there's families that discuss their histories. And you can find that some of these events, especially Iran's um, Iran's reclamation of the island of Hengam, or Hinjam, however you prefer, that this is something that left an impression on those families that were affected by it. Hengam or Hengam was an island that was ruled by an Arab sheikh that had a family tie to the sheikh of Dubai, but Iran reasserted its control over, and this left the British in a funny position where they were forced to figure out what exactly is the citizenship of this Arab sheikh that was ruling that island. Is he Iranian or is he, you know, trucial states, what would become the Emirates? And so um, these stories, the stories about how Iran treated that Arab family that ruled that island, you find that they sort of populate this um, discussions that are online even to this day. And you see some resentment, you see some, you know, I mean, it plays, I think, right into contemporary fears about Iran, contemporary suspicions about Iran. Um, some of the stories that, that families share with each other about the events that happened during this time period. Other examples are um, families whose ancestor was accosted by the Iranian customs patrol and um, women were held, for example, in in uh, Iranian port towns for days while Iran was figuring out whether smuggling happened. And this kind of thing just gets passed on and you can find it in some of these family memoirs. Sure. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. I'm really, really excited to to get my copy of the book delivered and I, I urge everyone to get hold of a copy of it as well. It's going to be a wonderful read. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I really, really appreciate the time you've given us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Simon. Thanks, Chelsea. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time.